Welcome to the Ultimate Fun Jobs Podcast, where our awesome guests share their incredible stories and success tips about some of the most amazing jobs on planet Earth. Here's your host, Dave Mendonca. Today's guest is pretty cool. His name is Roland Lazenby. He's a sports biographer who has authored books about Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and his latest about Magic Johnson. He's a great storyteller, a fun interview. Let's find out more about what his job is like right now. Roland, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Happy to be here. Yes, sir. Uh, Congrats on the latest book about Magic Johnson. How's that going? It's going great. I've had a lot of fun last night. It even got me on the BBC TV worldwide. So, hey, I'm just I'm just an old guy hanging out. So that was fun for me. Well deserved, sir. Like the craftsmanship that goes into these books. These things are tombs, like 800 pages. It, 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 you know what? Well deserved. All the fanfare. Well, uh, that's very kind of you to say. Um, you have to keep earning it every day. That's right. So, Roland, let's talk about the origin story of you becoming a sports biographer. Hold our hands. Take us through how it all started. Well, I was a terrible student, graduated last of my class at Virginia Military Institute, bottom fourth of my class at uh, high school in the Virginia mountains. But, um, you know, I I started to emerge and... um, I taught college for 21 years eventually, despite that terrible academic record. But I I have to say, I would always caution my students, and now I'm cautioning my own grandson. Yes, you want to take everything seriously, but whatever setbacks you have, doesn't matter if you have a lack of a plan. You you know, if you just sort of stay true to, to being honest with yourself and working hard, not that I worked real hard as a student, but if you stay true to things, you they'll work out for you. It's just, uh, you, you know, you can't know it all when you're young. And that was sort of the message I lived and the message I used later. Gotcha. So what about the path towards, you know, sports journalism, sports biography? Like, how did you get there? Well, I started out, I graduated with those terrible grades, but I got a job selling cars and I sold a bunch of cars the first month. And then I got hired as a teacher at a really, really um, difficult program in Petersburg, Virginia for kids coming out of corrections. I had played a little bit of college football and three years of college rugby. So I was a, a, I was a, well put together stout young fellow and and i thought i could go into this program and you know sort of muscle everybody and i had a i had an older gentleman uh joe williams he was a baptist minister a lead singer in a soul band and a math and science teacher and he taught me he took me aside he said young fella it's all about respect. He seated all of these very, very good kids, but very troubled in alphabetical order. He called them all Mr. and Miss, and he only had about six rules. And if they follow those six rules, he was on their side. So that was a life lesson that carried forward. I, I coached football uh, at Peabody. The next year I was hired as a varsity head coach at Blacksburg High School in wrestling up in the mountains, very different situation, but having all that responsibility was great. But in the middle of it all, I got diagnosed with a brain aneurysm, spent 10 days in the hospital, told me I should make my, all my final arrangements because I was about to have my first bleed. Fortunately, they were wrong. I spent 10 days in there. They gave me every test. They said, we have one more test we could give you, but that might cause a stroke. So we're just going to discharge you. My wife came, picked me up. I went home, ran five miles and went back to work. But during that time in the weeks afterward, I said, you know, I think I want to be a writer. So even though I was off to this great start as a high school coach, I quit all of that and became a sports writer at a weekly paper, which was 270 an hour back then. But (laughs) 
I learned so many things. Then I became a newspaper reporter covering news. And I covered sport, uh, not, not sports. I covered courts. I covered crime. I, I, I wrote features. I did all these kinds of things. And I learned all about the world. It was a, a an awesome education. And after doing that for six years, seven years, I said, you know, I really want to get out and cover something at the very highest level. And about that time, my father, who had always been a basketball nut, got brain cancer and died. Wow. And, I, you know, I'd always liked basketball, hadn't played it since the eighth grade. Uh, but I started paying, playing pickup every day and I started writing a basketball book. And that just started a chain you know i had uh it's a back to the father son thing you know that is so central to all of sports writing and i basically when i wrote a book called michael jordan the life that is all over the place in Massive. 21 languages mm -hmm. but in the course of writing that i realized realized something more about myself i'd been doing all of this writing over the years, partly in response to my father. And so I guess so much of what you end up doing is deeply personal. But I had a long, long journey to that. I was doing lots of contract books for people. Georgetown University and John Thompson hired me in 1984 to write uh, their national championship book wow. uh, when they won it with Patrick Ewing. Uh, I met Billy Packer. We hit it off. Wow. Uh, but but I will say this, a writing career, at least for me in nonfiction, but I think this is generally true, is idea driven. Hmm. And if you work very hard to develop ideas, um, and I, I use divergent thinking, something I did learn. I had a great mentor at Virginia Military Institute, Dr. Dean Foster, and he taught me divergent thinking. And that is there, there are potentially many answers to a question, i.e., what book should I write? And you can make lists. You don't have to come right to the answer. You just make lists and you don't worry if the answer is good or bad. Later, you go back after you have a whole bunch of answers and then you start sorting through what's good or bad. So it sort of opens your mind. And I use that process, not just to select my books over the years. Hmm. I use that process for the questions I was going to ask people, for the the very people I was going to interview for any project, I would make lists and lists of potential people to talk to. And a, a lot of my college teaching, I taught college journalism at Virginia Tech and Radford University, but my college teaching was about getting kids first to remember what divergent thinking was, <laughs> then to employ it. Got it. So... Okay, so like I mentioned earlier, your books are are, are really large, like many many pages. There's got to be so much work involved. Uh, I don't know how you get access to the players and all these sorts of things. So take us to like a day in the life when you're trying to construct one of these books. What does that day look like? What do your days look like? Well, you know, uh, different days over different segments of my career. I had written projects. I did five books with Billy Packer, uh, and, and they were good. We did things like a history of the final four that sold a bunch. But then I figured, well, this is cool, but I want to get to the NBA and really get in. And this was in the late 80s, 87, 88. And uh, one of my books had done well with the publisher. And so th they put me into a... a uh, uh, the backing to do a Boston Celtics project. And once I got into the NBA, now, now that is a totally different world. You got, uh, I mean, you talk about testosterone and media crowds. Uh, the crowds weren't as heavy in the late 80s as mm -hmm. they would become. But, you know, you get into an environment like that, you have to find your way around. And I, I wasn't a power player. I wasn't coming from Sports Illustrated. I wasn't coming from the the 
or the Chicago Tribune or one of those big organizations. I was a guy with a, a mid-level book contract, just sort of moving in and getting to know everybody. And that worked very well to the point, and I did a variety of things. And one of the big things, again, idea-driven, I realized there wasn't a history of the NBA Finals. And so I proposed that to a publisher, proposed it to the NBA. They both liked it. Wow. Next thing you know, I was interviewing anybody who had ever been anybody right. in the NBA. And that was a game changer. So the idea, wow. uh, the chance to talk to people. And then in 1992, I, I would run out of money. We'd been through some hard times so I had I had to cover the All-Star game in Orlando. I was writing a book about the Lakers, right. but it only paid me 22000 And uh, I had a family. It was tough. So mm. I slept in my car at the big event, the 92 All-Star game. Wow. But I had my media credentials so I could go in and interview all the players and, and do all the routine stuff. And, you know, they had the media hospitality room where I, I could eat. But while I was there, the Chicago Tribune Book Division hired me to write a history. They hired me for three or four book projects, wow. but they hired me to write a history of the Chicago Bulls. And that set me in position for the next six years wow. to be covering Bulls games. Now, I would be teaching college on Tuesday and Thursday. And I live in Virginia and I would, I would finish on Thursday and early Friday morning, I would fly to Chicago or somewhere the bulls were playing. I would, uh, usually I'd sp spend four or five days in Chicago, then come back Monday so that I could teach Tuesday, do grading work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and go back at it. And it was a very exciting life. But it was a grind. I, I've been married 48 years to just an amazing woman. We we had three wonderful children. We still do. Uh, grandchildren. And she um, she's pretty much the the brains in the operation. I, I'm just the guy going out and, and doing things. But I, I do have to say that in mm. the process, this was a long process. Mm. I didn't get to do these big biographies all at once. And the first ones I did, I didn't get paid a lot for. I'd get paid $10,000, $20,000. You know, I had great ideas, but I didn't trust agents. And you had to have an agent to get the big money. And I, um, I couldn't trust an agent. So I had to go to smaller publishers right. where the money was smaller, but I didn't have to worry about an agent who was also representing a, a $300,000 a book writer, giving him a great idea and having him turn around and give that to another writer. Yep. And so I had to protect things. And so it was, and, you know, you can grow cynical along the bunny trail of life where <laughs> you, you don't really see the, the bigger, uh, uh, the bigger opportunities and things that might come your way if you stay there. But the, the secret is also relationships. And I got to be really close with Tex Winter, the great assistant wow. coach, Hall of Famer. And I worked hard to help him uh, get into the Hall of Fame. But he could tell me anything about the Bulls. And he later, the Lakers, when he worked there. And uh, I also got to know everybody, guys like Steve Kerr and Scottie Pippen and, wow. and just the array of people because I was there doing the work and having these exciting moments. When I look back to, to be there, I wrote a book on The Last Dance season that was a bestseller. The director for the Last Dance docu-series said it was one of his Bibles in putting that together because by then I was so tight with everybody. I I was really getting lots of great individual interviews. But you know, um I um uh, and I still covered the NBA and I've gone to events uh up up until the pandemic. 
But really starting about 2008, when I started a Jerry West biography for ESPN, I'd done a Phil Jackson biography in 2000 that was an LA Times bestseller. And those things made me reevaluate my value system. And I had to ask myself, because I was now doing these longer books. And whereas I would be doing three, four, five books sometimes a year, shorter books, you know, quicker, more feature style writing. I said, what do I really value? What are my values? And obviously... I, uh, I I didn't have to think long to think I really value interviewing people and learning actively. And as a college uh, teacher, that's what I did. I taught a lot of my students. I made them do all these interviews. And through that, the ones that were so inclined began to really see interviewing, as you know, yep. is a wonderful thing. And it is a, a path to knowledge. It's a path to power, particularly in this age of, um, of um, new media that has changed traditional media dramatically. Uh, and, and so I really valued interviewing people. I valued doing the research to prepare for those interviews. And um, I, I found that I really enjoyed all of the research uh, in constructing not just a person's life, but the life of that person's family. And uh, I enjoyed the idea part of it. And I also had a value for the writing challenge of um these longer documents, because you're able to provide all the context. You know, we live in a world without a lot of context, and it's harder and harder to get people interested in context. But you can take any statement and, and all the propagandists of the world, and they are legion. They love to take these isolated statements, make them seem like something, and drive everybody's anger so that they can then take that anger and convert it to something. And context, the very large context of life and history and personality, those things are critical. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have to reach far afield to pull context in. But that's all right, because I learned long ago that your writing should be filled with surprises, just as interviews and and all other types of stories and media should be. You should subtly surprise people. Yep. And it means you're often, when you're doing a big book, you're shifting perspective. You have what are called these narrative pilots. One, one chapter, somebody's telling the story. Another chapter, here comes another voice. It may be a minor player, but this minor player has a view of things that no one else has. And you're moving through the story of a great person's life with all of these narrative pilots, these people sort of casting the way for you to understand the person you're writing about. And I found that to be very challenging and great fun. It's just beautiful how you weave this tapestry of a person. It's not just them. It's the people that they're affected by families. Like you just said, friends and all that sort of thing. It's just, it's really stunning and it's great storytelling. And I think that's one of the big reasons why you're such a fan favorite with uh, many NBA fans out there. Now, looking at your career, Roland, you That's had very nice of you to say. Thank hey, you. Hey, it's the truth. Uh, so looking at your career, Roland, here's this kid has the, the health scare at what? You were 24, something like that, at early 20s? Yeah, yeah. And then from there, you have this the, the writing bug, and you're like trying to find opportunities every, every which way. It's right place, right time, developing uh, relationships, willing to do the work, not afraid of it. 
And it just, it just spawns all these opportunities. It's, it's a grind. Like I, I used to work in sports media, so I understand working a beat every day, day in, day out. A lot of people don't get that. They're like, Hey, it's sports TV. You're interviewing multimillionaire athletes. It's fun. It is, but it's a grind. It's the same thing every day. You did that. And I just loved how you evolved your career. You know, you thought, okay, what are my values? How can I expand this? How can I get more depth? And now it's blossomed into this great string of biographies. Like, well done, sir. Thank you. You know, I thought that if I ever did a book that sort of pulled it all together, Mm. I would call it learning to care on a deeper level. Because I, I, I saw that first, and uh, <clears throat> some some people just can't avoid it. Mm-hmm. Innately, they they care on an insane level. And it really, 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 really matters to them. Mm-hmm. Jerry West, insanely, insanely caring on a deeper level. Michael Jordan, get out of his way. If he doesn't have something that's going to drive him to a deeper level, he's going to make it up to make himself matter so that he can get to that deeper level so that he can do even more. Kobe Bryant, you know, he's, he's just lit the runway for his stardom. He had, and he tells me I'd have these talks with him. He said, I don't know how I'm going to get there. They keep trying to change me. I don't want to change. And I, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to get there. And so each and every one of these people, and you can see it in routine everyday people. It's some nurse. I mean, hospitals are terrible places today. They are chaos. But to see some of these nurses uh, and and different personnel who care so deeply about what they do, even though the routine of it is often grim and depressing, is um, it, it, it's deeply stirring to me. But you see these people who at some point, just like reassessing their values, they come to understand that caring on a deeper level about what you do is where you have to go. And you have to stop and think, what do I do to help myself get there? What am I willing to do to get myself to that point Mm -hmm. so along that way so what is your driver so along this way you're 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 at all these different pit stops writing the smaller books then you get that big one with the nba you know the nba finals book and then that spring springs open a bunch of stuff for you like what's the driver at every level of your career to get to that next level you know, I didn't really understand this probably till I wrote Michael Jordan, The Life. And don't get me wrong, my father loved me deeply, and I loved him deeply. But he didn't approve of me very much. And really? uh, that that becomes obvious. It's what drove Michael Jordan nuts. His father did not approve him. Oh, no, they fell in love with each other as he came up. But he was basically always going... You know, what do you think of me now, old man? You know, that (laughs) that he wouldn't say that. Yeah. But that was what was pushing him. Everybody has Mm -hmm. certain buttons. You know, some of it is really working to understand yourself. Thinking, right? where do you want to go? What do you want in life? And how... Are you going to get there? Now, when I met Kobe Bryant as a young kid and I began these conversations with him, I was really fearful for the dude. I said, this kid is, he's balls to the wall, determined to be the greatest ever. And he doesn't care. He is going to do whatever it takes. And I said, I just don't know if that's realistic. He didn't care. And, you know, he he didn't, there weren't a lot of people, they all love Kobe today, 
they they didn't all love him when he was a teenager in the NBA. His teammates didn't like him. The uh, the Philadelphia public didn't like him. They they assumed that he was doing all this stuff, arranging to be traded to the Lakers. The fans in Charlotte thought this kid's a jerk. Who does he think he is? There were no there weren't a lot of young players in the NBA. And, and the truth is, Kobe was doing none of that. That was Sonny Vaccaro and Adidas as admitted to me by Sonny Vaccaro, they were working behind the scenes, manipulating everything because they wanted to sell shoes. They wanted him at the Lakers. It was a thing he could do. They, they used every bit of influence they had to get him a tryout with Jerry West. They knew that if Jerry West saw him, he would see things that he hadn't seen. And that's what happened. And Kobe Bryant, could have explained that to me or any dozens of people along the way. He knew that was the truth. He knew there was all this dislike. He didn't care. He didn't take the time to explain himself. That was a waste of time. He had one goal. Mm -hmm. He wanted to be the greatest. And that was it. He wasn't interested in playing PR games. He wasn't interested in any of that stuff. And as I went along doing, I did a biography. I did a book early in his career called Mad Game, the NBA education of Kobe Bryant. It came out in 99. It was a really good book. Uh, I think I got paid 10,000 for it, but it, it helped establish my chops. Later, in 2016, I had to do a biography of him called Showboat, mm-hmm. which was the nickname, excuse me, that Shaq and all those older Lakers had given him. He hated that nickname, but that's who he was, that guy who w- was going to do everything. And it was only then when I looked back that I, I, I realized so many things about Kobe. And that is the other great reason I like doing these major projects because you can spend your life working at something like I did writing about the NBA and think you understand it pretty well. And then you can get to a point where you're going, Hmm. Oh, wow. There's a whole other level or several other levels to this that I didn't even realize. And so That's another reason why it's so important to care on a deeper level, because every time you think you understand everything, think again. Life is very complex, even something like a basketball. Basketball can be amazingly complex, as can the competitive personality. Well, you, geez, you interviewed a, a few competitive personalities, Kobe, Michael, Jerry West. These guys were classic for that. Yes, they were. And they all, they all were perfectionists in nature, which is a miserable, miserable malady to have, you know, to yeah. Jerry West and his mother. Um, and, and I first locked in on that doing the Jerry West book. There was Jerry West. He was a high school senior. He was being signed to go to West Virginia University, where that was that was the highest thing he could have dreamed of then as a kid out of Cabin Creek or Shillian, the little community near Cabin Creek. And there's a picture, Fred Schaus, the head coach at West Virginia University, Jerry's father. They're both smiling for the camera, these big smiles. And there's Jerry and his mother sitting in front of them at this desk. And they're both just glowering at the camera like, they could, you know, they could just bite nails or something. And, And it was like, there's perfectionism. Mm. It eats you alive, even in the happy moments. And some some great competitors find a way to contend with perfectionism so that it doesn't destroy them. Others, it's it's fatal, I guess. But uh, it's right. fascinating to look at all these human elements that go into greatness. Greatness. Uh, speaking of Michael Jordan, okay, is this true? Is this a true story? He saved your life. Is this true? Oh, yes. 
Oh, yes. I was, you know, in that press corps, and I can't tell you how exciting it was after he came back to the game. And I was there for all of that. I mean, it was like, whoa, you know, the, uh, the, the rumors that were going around the, uh, up there in Chicago at the Bar- Bardo Center where they practiced and uh, the crowd that kept gathering and every all the reporters in the world was like, George's coming back, George's coming back. And, you know, the NBA had had him. And they they were fighting all kinds of battles over how to how to lasso this great force who has come through basketball and made people care everywhere. They had lawsuits and corporate battles and and it just was this intense power when he he had I still have the press release I'm back yep <laughs> and he he terrorized the NBA. They were scared. And this is a league, like I said, there's a lot of testosterone around the NBA. And Jordan put just about everybody on pause because he can make you look real bad and he could humiliate you and he liked to do it. But uh, to see all that happen, to be there and then to follow it through, you know, in his great failure, uh, in the 95 playoffs when he had those turnovers at the end of the game. Uh, it, and to be there with Tex Winter mm-hmm. as my um, as my Merlin or whatever he is. He's this mythical figure. And, in, you know, we, we eat pregame meals together. You know, he doesn't have to do any press. So he'll come out and he'll come over and talk to me and tell me what's – what's going on. And I'm just like, you know, I got to pinch myself to, and it's like, he's just, he just can't tell a lie. He is like this pure, true American spirit. He really is. And he's not afraid to challenge anybody in the, in this whole testosterone driven, testosterone driven, uh, uh, arena, you know, and mm-hmm. he's there in practice and he's there in his shorts. And Michael Jordan will come up and jerk his shorts down. And there's Texas <laughs> bare butt hanging out of his jock strap and everybody's laughing at him. Texas will pull his shorts up and just get right back at him, you know, and uh, oh. they loved him. But I mean, he was an intense dude, Tex winner. So he was my friend. And, um, you don't have to have all the friends in the world, but you got to have some very good ones. That's fantastic. But how did Jordan save your life? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> it was that exciting time. I knew there was a bad, I knew I was going somewhere with this. Yeah. It's it, when I start talking these memories, Dave, I, I, I get so lost in the memory, but here we are in Charlotte. Now the coaches, Phil Jackson's never led a writer into the prep Hmm. for the playoffs and they're getting ready to face the Hornets in the 95 playoffs. And they got Alonzo and he invites me into the film study with the coaches. One of these moments I'll, I'll never forget. And so I'm there and then we go down to Charlotte in the course of the playoff series and it's crowds are there. Jordan is like, he might as well have been president for all the media and so um, he's walking out after, you know, um, a practice and all the media course coming. And I'm right there in front of him, walking backwards, backpedaling as fast as I can, recording every word he's saying, you know, just fully in the moment, just locked in. And this is all the media core. And these are powerful people, New York Times, uh, name them all. And I'm there. I've got the microphone right in front of him and we're back and, and he's, he's on a determined march out of the building. They have this huge uh, loading dock at the back and it's a straight drop off on the concrete. It's a big concrete loading dock and it's 10, 10 feet and I'm walking backwards and, um, 
I don't even think about that. I'm so locked in on. And at the very last second before I walk off the back, I'm sure I'd have fractured my skull and I'd have killed me. Jordan reaches out and grabs me and pulls me back and saves my life. And and everybody looks and just goes, whoa. And then they just move on and he's headed out, you know, getting out of there, getting away from the media. And it was like that one moment. And it was like, get out of town. <laughs> You're saved by Superman, the real Superman. I'm I'm telling you. I uh it was it was amazing. Oh my god. That's hilarious. I'm I'm tearing up right now for the podcast listeners. I'm tearing up. That's hilarious. Wow, what a story. You you've had a, quite a few like interactions with some NBA guys, like, you know, Kobe, Michael, anything okay, but obviously the Michael story is amazing. Any other standout stories during your career with these guys? Oh, all kinds of things. Um you know, the first time I interviewed Phil Jackson, you know, I'm some guy there writing a, a history for the trip. And so Phil doesn't want to, you know. Uh, and so he says, all right, I'll give him five minutes at the Orlando pre-draft camp. Uh, but that's it. I'm not talking anymore. And so I work on that first question. <laughs> and I think, you know, I, I'd gotten to know John Kunla who had coached the Lakers to six championships in the 1940s and fifties. And he had just gotten into the hall of fame in 1992, I think it was, or 93, somewhere in there. So 40 years after winning his last championship and winning six of them with Mike and Pollard, And he was the guy who really developed and popularized the screen and roll, which is the dominant thing still in the NBA today. So 40 years later, they don't think he's worthy of the Hall of Fame still. And the idea was, you can't, you know, you know, these are great players. It's all because of the players. Anybody could coach his team, you know, that's the thinking. So I wanted to ask Phil, because here he is coaching Michael Jordan there. You know, they've won three championships at the time I'm interviewing him. And people are saying, Phil Jackson, nah, that's not a thing to do with him. So all I wanted to do, and I knew he played mind games. So all I wanted to do was just mess with him. And I, I sort of gotten an indication that John Kuhnla later coached at the University of Minnesota, and he had recruited Phil Jackson, this kid out of North Dakota, to come play for him. So I knew that Phil knew John Kuhnla. I knew that. And ultimately, the Bulls broke apart because they were fighting over who gets the credit, because that's that's the agenda Jerry Krause set. It was a very sad thing. They were also fighting not to pay Scottie Pippen what they owed him. But but that's another thing. Even though they'd made hundreds of millions of dollars buying the team for $15 million and, and watching Michael drive it, I, I mean, it's how many billions is it worth today? But in all of this, I knew that Phil, you know, Phil and Jerry Krause had been fighting over money. And Jerry Krause didn't think Phil was worth it. And so I asked Phil, I said, what do you think about John Kuhnla? And have you ever fished? <laughs> no. Have you ever I been not. fishing? No, no, oh, sir. Oh, there's nothing like fishing and having that strike where, I mean, some behemoth you cannot see comes from out of nowhere and hits it. It's like the force of God hitting that line and it just takes off running like that. And Phil hit that question like, Oh my God. He, he levitated out of his seat to answer that question. And I had cassette tapes back then and I had my, my little reporter's bag and I, I maybe had three or four cassette tapes. I, 
I, you know, I, I was glad I had some. If I if I had not a taped over valuable stuff, just to, because Phil started talking and he just spent like two hours. You couldn't shut him up. He wanted to talk to me. That's how I ended up getting in the film room for that Charlotte series. He wanted to talk to me. He told me all of his conflict with Jerry Krause. Wow. Nobody knew any of this then. And he, he told, he said things about Jerry Krause and I was going, holy cow, how am I going to deal with this stuff? I'm just here in town to, to write, you know, this history. <laughs> and I'm saying, I can't exactly call the Associated Press and say, Phil Jackson hates Jerry Krause, but the, the hatred was already boiling. Wow. So I typed it all up. And I, I typed in there and all this stuff, very raw, very harsh, very, he had these heavy criticisms of Jerry Krause. And um, I listed Krause at about 5, 7, 230. The only thing that Phil changed in the whole document, and this was a lot of pages. He changed Krause to 5, 7, 260. Oh, shoot. And when Kraus saw that, oh, and, and I, I mean, Phil just had a way. Later when I was doing Blood on the Horns, Phil would talk about things like, and Phil would use me to get this retribution to Jerry. Wow. He would say, yeah, the big problem is, you know, the last thing Michael usually wants to do before it goes on the floor is go back in the can and and sit on the pot. And he says, invariably, Jerry goes back there and wants to sit on the pot next to him. While we're, you know, and it's like this intimacy thing. And and when he told me that, and he told me that in an on-the-record interview for Blood on the Horns, when Krauss and Reinsdorf saw that, you you did, I mean, you could see the rocket shooting out of their ears. They were so <laughs> angry. The hatred was so deep. And, you know, uh, the story of Michael humiliating Jerry Krause and the team bus was not on the last dance, uh, was not was not in Utah during those playoffs. And that's why Krause came back. And I was right there when he walked out in the middle of um, a media day. And he said, I don't care if we go age 82 and 0. Phil's not back. He's done. Wow. And that, that that started the whole thing right there. As you know, uh, and I don't know how much your crowd's into pro basketball, but right. I will add one final thing to that story. I, maybe I should. Maybe I should let you ask a question. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, you know, during the pandemic, I was working on the magic book. My, I, I had all these cassette tapes from, you know, 30, 30 some years of pro basketball. And I, I went to digitized. Uh, about 2000, but I, I was rushing through so many projects, half of them I'd never listened to. And my, my wonderful wife went back and digitized all my cassette tapes because when you got a cassette tape, you can't find things. There's no way of searching. And, you know, you, you can run 60 minutes one way, 60 minutes another, looking for a, you know, a, a two minute quote. You don't have time to do it. She digitized my tapes and there it was, 1991 and I I went there was a Lakers bullets game in Washington and I went to cover it and um I went down to the press room I mean to the locker room to do the press interviews after the game and there standing outside the locker room of the Lakers was Chicago Bulls general manager Jerry Krause mm -hmm. And I'm and, and nobody's paying any attention to him. You know, he's a short little fat guy. They probably noticed him, but they didn't. They're all busy. And I'm going, well, I want to talk to this guy. I, I wasn't doing any Bulls projects at the time, but I said, I want to talk to him. And, uh, you know, he had worked for the Bullets. He was a scout for the Bullets. And then he was a scout for the Lakers. He was a guy that, I mean, Jerry West loved him because Krause was 
very meticulous and he had just that undefinable talent for personnel. And so the Bulls, this April of 1991, are marching through the NBA. And Jerry Krause is like a puffer fish filled with pride. You know, he's just there, just begging. He's standing outside the locker room. All the writers are coming and going. He's just begging for somebody to talk to him. He just wants to gloat because he knows what's coming. Nobody else knows. They got a sense. The bulls have awakened. So I start talking to him and to listen to the pride and uh, the hopefulness and the excitement in his voice on the verge of everything. And then to see what happened and how ugly, I mean, it was ugly, ugly, ugly. And I would call Krauss, and we'd have these conversations years later. And I called him on the 10th anniversary of the Bulls' 98 last dance season, their last championship. And he was as bitter as ever. He said, you know, I got videotapes of every game. I've never watched an effing minute of it. And I just thought it went from this happiness and promise and all this success, the, the kind of success, I'm. it's global. I mean, that success, that story has captured the global imagination like no other story could, and have it end that sadly. You know, nobody wanted to hire Phil Jackson as a coach. He's the guy who'd done LSD on the book, uh, on the beach, uh, after the Knicks won the championship in 73 and wrote a book about it. <laughs> and, and, and Tex Winter, nobody in pro basketball wanted to hire Tex Winter. But Jerry Krause's two strokes of genius. Hire Phil Jackson, that was crazy. Hire Tex Winter, put them together, watch it go. And he had all kinds of ideas. Charles Oakley, um, you, you know, all kinds of different things. Scotty Pippen, he was. And so to see how sad it became, I think that was the saddest interview I ever listened to. Now, I just ran off about 20 minutes there of your very simple question. I apologize. It's all good. It's a great story. Uh, you know what? Say what you will about him and what went down. He was a talent. Uh, the way he architect or put together that team, that dynasty, you yes, cannot shortchange him. Like he, he was a genius, the way he cr crafted that team. He was the lesser bully. <laughs> right. Jordan, Jordan was, as James Worthy told me, and James Worthy was an upperclassman was when Jordan was a freshman. And James Worthy said he was a bully, and he bullied me. And he, Jordan bullied the hell out of everybody. He could be so charming. It was unbelievable. He could turn that off and on, but he could bully. And he really, really, really bullied. Wow. And Kraus bullied him and he bullied Kraus back and Kraus bit off more than he could chew trying to out bully Jordan. And that really is the fundamental human equation in it. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. I'm sorry to hear that, but it, it is what it is. However, yeah. shifting gears. Okay. So this is a career podcast, Rowan. And <laughs> some of the, that, I'm sorry. it's all good. The listeners and viewers. Okay. They want to know, so we talked about earlier, like some of the advanced money you got for your books, you know, you're talking about 10 grand here, that sort of thing there. As we know, in today's economy, it's very hard to, you know, make a living at something, right? So I'm sure you're very familiar of how publishing works today. Can somebody be a sports biographer and make a living from it today? I I, I am not the highest paid sports biographer, but I'm, I'm I get about 200,000 per book. And then I get all the foreign rights money. And yeah. so it's not, uh, you know, it's not wise to spend five years doing it. But I, I, I've had a couple of those. My Jordan book is in 21 languages. It wow. has sold and sold and sold. Yeah. And it, I get two nice royalty checks every year. Okay. I'm not fabulously wealthy, but I have a good life. I pay my bills. 
I uh, I get to to do what I want to do. Uh, I will say the book business is about sales. So you need to learn how to do a launch. You, you have to really think long and hard. What's the market for your book? Mm-hmm. I chose to write nonfiction. I, I chose to write about an established market. And those were uh, business calculations, even as I wanted to once I'd been in writing a while and I started to understand, and I was also lucky in the early days because there were a lot of mid-list publishers. All the newspapers had their own little book divisions, the Chicago Tribune book division, uh, Cox newspapers, Atlanta Journal Constitution worked for those folks. Kansas City Star had Andrews and McMeal worked for those folks, worked for a lot of the uh, worked for contemporary books in Chicago, Masters Press. And they were all, they weren't looking to hit home runs. Um, by that, um, they they would like a book on the bulls. And if it sold 10 to 20,000 copies and they paid me 10K, they had made nice money. And a lot of times, even though they sold out the first edition, they would never reprint it because that was an additional gamble, unless it was a really hot book. And so I was able to come along and work for these publishers and do fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a book contract. And I would sometimes do five or six of them. These were not big. These were, you know, hundred and and they, a lot of times they had a lot of pictures with them. So I didn't have right. to, I didn't have to, but I, I had to write well and it had to sell. But over time, I, I, I took less a couple of times, like on the Mad Game book. I, I, I took 10000 to do a full book because I wanted to establish that I could really handle a longer narrative. Right. And that worked. Uh, and I got respect for a lot of those things. And so um, it was not like it was instant. It took... Mm decades really and you know i couldn't get my agent to even submit and i'd never had an agent and finally i got one in 2006 i did an oral history of the lakers from mcgraw hill and one of the editors there he was not my editor but because he didn't even know where the lakers were but he quit and wanted to become an agent and he reached out to me And so he became my agent, but he really didn't understand sports. And he did not want me to write a biography on Jerry West because he had no idea who Jerry West was. And we fought about this for three years. And finally, we had this screaming, cussing argument over the phone with each other. He said, all right, Lazenby, I'm going to show you. Nobody wants your effing book on Jerry West. And the next day, ESPN paid $100,000 for it uh, right as soon as he submitted it. Instantly. And wow. he shut up after that. But the 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 point is, you got to fight for your right to party too. Uh, it it is it can often be a long process. I, I think it goes back to so many things. Today, all of the uh, people can have their own media operation, and I explain this when I talk college to the kids back in from uh, especially in the early part of the new century to 2012 or so you start your own media corporation today you got the technology there if you're in a band you got your own recording studio you have the technology what separates it is your ability to zero in on the things you really care about but not just what you care about what the public cares about. And you have to really sharpen your wits in terms of audience. I have had kids from Virginia Tech who have, you know, a couple million followers now. Uh, Some of my students have a couple million followers on uh, YouTube. And, and uh, you know, uh, Marty Smith, who was my student at Radford University, that guy's blowing up the world as an ESPN guy. And he stood up when I told him, you gotta, you gotta have an idea of what you want. And all my kids were sitting there scared. He stood up at the back, waving his hand and said, and he's an old redneck like I am. We're, you know, we're from down in (laughs) Southwest Virginia. And he goes, 
I want to work for ESPN and I'm going to do it. And he called the shot and he did it. He went out and took a job at a, not a very good paper in Virginia, but he had a chance to cover NASCAR hmm. and he got to know all the NASCAR drivers played pickup basketball with a bunch of them. And, you know, he has Marty's whole thing. I don't know if you have seen Marty on ESPN, but he has built relationships everywhere he goes. Mm -hmm. And he's so genuine and he still hasn't changed his accent. And ESPN <laughs> has laid off all sorts of fancy Dan's. They wouldn't dare lay off Marty Smith. He is an American institution in his own way. He's not yeah. trying to be all that. He's just trying to do what he loves. Beautiful. So, well, that's great. Marty's doing so well. Just curious though, Roland, about the publishing industry today. Okay, we live in an era of chat GPT, disruption, uh, publishing uh, houses going down, like books. What is the history of books? Are, will we always have physical books in our hand? Like, what do you see the future of the industry? Because if someone's listening to this podcast or watching this YouTube video and they're thinking about being a writer as a career sports biographer, they might be concerned. Like, is there a future in this? I think um, it's such a large cloud. It's hard to see totally past that. I'm one of those writers, you know, Facebook, uh, they've, they've taken pirated editions and, and piracy is rampant. Michael Jordan has sold and sold and sold. It is also the pirating of Michael Jordan has been uh, immense. It's sort of, but I, I don't, I mean, I, I would get mad over it like a farmer would get mad over the lack of rain. But what are you going to do? I mean, it's an immense force. You have to find a way around it. I think the things I cite, learning to care on a deeper level and um, really exploring and researching and moving deeper and deeper, building a strong sense of what the audience wants. Look, uh, you know... I did some hard assessments. I, I'm in Southwest Virginia. And I said, nobody gives a hoot about Southwest Virginia. I'm in Roanoke and Salem, Virginia. I, nobody cares. I'm not writing about something that the publishers are going to jump at. So I said, I'm going to go find things that people already care about, which is what all media outlets do anyway. But I'm going to write about those things. Well, there was a lady, there is a lady here. She's a friend of mine. She's a brilliant newspaper reporter. I used to have her come speak in my college journalism classes. Her name's Beth Macy. She did Dope Sick, which became a big series. Yeah. She, she'd done a couple of books. I, I helped her some getting started with book proposals. You have to be a great proposal writer in publishing. You have to have great ideas and just write that. Write the hell out of the proposal. My my proposal for the Jordan book was called The Pig Fuck. You just have to hit them with something that never in a million years would they would they expect to get a uh, a book proposal about Michael Jordan called The Pig Fuck. Uh, but but the point is Beth Macy wrote about people right here in Southwest Virginia. And she made the world care about it. Now, that's immense. That is immense what she has done. I'm, I, I'm not sure I would attempt that even today. But what I will say is that AI is an immense cloud on not just the writing and publishing landscape, it's an immense cloud on the landscape of human employment and human careers. Yeah. Um, but I think that drives us, and it's all a function of your drive and determination, but I, I still think that the best writing is intensely human. And you are, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, you are trying to pursue those intensely human stories that um, are almost beyond imagination. Mm -hmm. 
And, and that's what I was doing in writing 800 pages on Magic Johnson. He was in the middle of the busing battles in the 1970s. And I wanted to go back. It was almost an archaeology project. I wanted because it, it, it was an ugly situation for Magic and his family and his brother. And you had these two races in the mid-70s in Lansing, Michigan, who really didn't know much about each other. But they were there. It was brand new in the culture. We had this ugly, ugly racial history. So many of these families, Black families in Lansing, Michigan, had come out of Mississippi and other parts of the South where the violence against them was just, yeah. just shameful. But And so all of that fed into the tension there. And I wanted to go get all the shards of that emotion and how this 15-year-old kid stepped in the middle of that. He was called in by the adults and told <clears throat> before he had ever played a varsity basketball game, you've got to help us solve these racial problems here. Wow. At Everett High School, he goes, whoa, I'm 15 years old. How am I going to do that? And the principal looked at him and said, You'll figure it out. And so I, to me, um, that's, it, it's this human story. Now, sure. some people don't like reading about that. And I don't know why. Uh, I, I can't worry about that. I just have to tell the story. Sure. Others, I, I mean, I, I, an awful lot of people have responded very positively. I will say this. We're in a tough time in our country. A lot of people don't want to read about our real racial history. They, And so it's tough, but I, I, you also have to say, I don't care. I'm going to, I'm going to deal with the truth and I'm going to find the truth. I'm going to find the human truth. And that's where I'm going to stake my ground. And basically if you're going to be a writer, wow, you, you better not give too much of a hoot about other things. You uh, now you you got to figure out how to pay the bills, yeah. and I I did all kinds of things to pay the bills. I sold printing. I, uh, you know, I taught. Um, I uh, I was lucky to be a college instructor. I was no professor, believe me, but right. I was a good instructor, right. uh, and I did it for twenty one years while doing most of my travel and work in basketball. Uh, so I will say. To you, what that principal said to Magic, you'll figure it out. <laughs> Sound advice, sir. I, I got to tell you, Roland, whenever I speak with you, I just envision being around a campfire and, and Roland is telling these stories or roasting marshmallows that there's like a group of us just listening to you. I, I can't speak for the podcast listeners or the YouTube viewers, but that's how I feel. Like the way that you spin a yarn, tell a tale, it's a gift, sir. Like, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people buy your magic book? Well, I, I will tell you, uh, you can buy it at your independent bookstore. They are the heart of America. Yeah. Every town has a, an, you can go there and order it. If it's not in stock, you can go to Amazon. Of course you, you can go to <laughs> all kinds of places. It is literally everywhere. I will tell you, I sell also a lot of audiobooks. Uh, the magic audiobook is 30 hours. Did the, you voice uh, it? Did you pardon? voice it? Did you voice I, it? You know, they made a mistake and let me read the intro. JD Jackson, <laughs> this guy's an incredible reader. Mm. And he reads the whole thing. He makes my writing sound so much better. He's incredible. And I'm not saying that because mm -hmm. I don't always say that. I've but I, I will tell you that my Jordan audiobook has sold and sold and sold. Mm. Uh, and and people, you know, I've read some six, seven, eight hundred page books. You have to really, really be into it. The good thing about somebody like Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, they have devotees that are really, really into them. And I've been very fortunate there. And I've worked hard to tell them all the things they wouldn't know somewhere else. That's the other thing. Whatever you're doing, you got to bring lots of surprises. And I'm not talking about gimmicks. I'm mm. talking about the detail of humanity, the the small things that are 
powerful. The death of Magic Johnson has this wonderful mother, and she was a teenager when her own wonderful mother died. And mm -hmm. I really wanted to talk about the custody of love and warmth and embrace uh, uh, of these women these black women who have come off the coastal plain of North Carolina or inland in Magic's case, his family uh, around Tarboro in central North Carolina, coming off plantations and just very difficult life, but maintaining this custody of family love and, yeah. and faith and doing it under extreme circumstances, but making that the main gift they bequeath in life to their children. And um, the basketball is important, but it's that care and custody of the emotional power that really is the gift that Magic Johnson has brought forth into the larger world. And so uh, some people felt that tiresome they missed my point on all of that M many 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 have not but some have um and so you just have to go ahead and not care and just take the risk and tell the story right. and be brave you know we we started out with humans scratching out stuff in the dirt or on cave walls we got a we got a brave tradition behind us and so when you consider that brave tradition, lots of people have been beheaded for what they wrote. Yeah. Uh, there are worse things than having AI come along and, and cheat you. So, uh, or having piracy get you and, and, you know, give away. I, I still don't figure why they want to just give away free downloads. Uh, but you know what? People who read those downloads also go later and buy the book because they want to own it. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. But but my point in all this is you got to be, I would say, you got to be effing brave. You got to be effing courageous, whatever you do in life. I don't, my old man had to sell insurance. He was lucky to do that. He got burned horribly before mm -hmm. I was born, but he recovered from it after two years in a VA hospital. And he was brave selling insurance. And so whatever you do, you got to be brave. And that's, that's the bottom line. Sir, well said, inspiring words. Roland, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again for being on the Thank show. Thank you, Dave, for inviting me on this. I really appreciate it. All right, there you go, Roland. Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate the insight, the wisdom into how to become a sports biographer. The thing about Roland is he's such a great storyteller. You could just listen to that guy talk about anything for like hours. Roland, again, I appreciate it. Thank you again for appearing on the show. All right, guys, if you like the content, please feel free to subscribe to the YouTube channel and the podcast. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening to the Ultimate Fun Jobs podcast. Remember to also check out the Ultimate Fun Jobs YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button. Until next time, have a great week.